Welcome to Into the Verse, the Parsha podcast where we dive deep into the verses to share new and unexpected insights, illuminating the Parsha like you've never seen before. This is Ari Levison together with the one and only Rabbi David Foreman to talk about Parsha Lachacha when we begin the Abraham saga. Rabbi Foreman, today I want to talk to you about something that I've been waiting over two years to talk to you about. Oh boy, that sounds like you have been holding your breath for a while. Ari, I'm pleased to tell you, you can exhale. <sighs> so I'll be honest, it's not something I've fully figured out yet. Um, So this might be a little bit more of a behind-the-scenes process as we put all the pieces together. But I'm really excited about it because, to me, it deals with one of the most perplexing, confusing psukim in the entire Torah. That pasuk's actually not in this week's parsha. It's actually not in the book of Genesis at all. It's actually in Leviticus, in the middle of the laws of the Arayot. Basically, all of the illicit relations that you're not allowed to have and what happens to you if you do. Not a very popular section of the Torah. It's kind of all that the icky stuff, all of these incestual relationships that, you know, we don't really like to think about or talk much about. But there's this one pasuk here that to me is is bizarre. It's confusing. It's hard to understand on its own. But it really opened up some fascinating stuff in this week's parsha, which I'm looking forward to getting to. So if I understand correctly, we're going to be starting from Leviticus and working our way back to Genesis. So hit me with it, Ari. What is it in Leviticus that caught your eye? Okay, so we're going to be jumping into Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17. It's the middle of this case law uh, describing all of these illicit relationships. So it describes a case. This person sleeps with this person, and then the law, here's what happens to them. So verse 17 starts off laying out the case. A man who takes his sister. Now, right off the bat, just setting up the case, there's something that should jump out to us here. What verb would you have expected the Torah to use when it's describing a situation? Right. The word yikach is a little bit strange, right? Because yikach in Hebrew, which means take, generally in this context, would be associated with marriage, such as ki yikach yishisho, when a man would take a wife. You wouldn't use it for an illicit relationship. Normally, the language for illicit relationships would be yishkav, to so sleep, literally to sleep with or to lie with. Exactly, right. Why would the Torah be using this language of yikach to take, which, you know, over and over again, when it's used between a man and a woman, means to marry. So that's an initial question that I have, just immediately in the first few words of this verse. That's not what I think makes it the most perplexing, confusing verse in the entire Torah. This question, I think, you know, requires a careful reading to notice. But my next question, I think, really hits us over the head like a ton of bricks. So let's keep reading this verse. Someone who takes his sister, bat aviv o whether it's the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, also notable that it specifies either one, whether it's from his mother or from his father. Um, um, so they both see each other's nakedness, which again, it's like, it seems like that should have been the main focus is that they sleep with each other, not that they seem to like, almost get married, which isn't even possible because you can't marry your sister. But here's here's this next word, Rabbi Foreman, if you want to read it, is really what just kind of makes you scratch your eyes and say, am I reading this right? Right, chesed hu. It's hard to figure out how to translate the word chesed in this context. Chesed usually means it's a kindness, but here uh, incest seems anything but kind. So the use of the word kindness 
at face value is pretty strange. Yeah, it's like, what is this word doing here? Like chesed, kindness, is like the last word you would expect in this verse talking about this incestual relationship between a brother and a sister, and the Torah is saying it is chesed. So this leads some commentators to say, well, maybe it's it's not the chesed that we think is the word that's kindness. It's actually from an Aramaic word, which has a totally different meaning. And all the commentators try to break their heads, trying to figure out what this word could possibly be doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just so confusing. The verse continues, right? So they're cut off from amongst their people. Now, Ari, since this is a podcast that you're doing not on Parshat Kedoshim, but on Parshat Lech Lecha, I kind of already see where you're going here, right? You're seeing all this strange stuff in 17. You're saying, funny, because all this strange stuff in 17 reminds me of some strange stuff in the book of Genesis, specifically in Parshat Lech Lecha. Because famously in Parshat Lech Lecha, you have a moment where the brother-sister relationship underlying Abraham's marriage to Sarah suddenly gets highlighted, right? You get to this moment in Genesis where Avram is going down to Mitzrayim, is going down to Egypt, and all of a sudden he stops Sarai and says, we've got to make some sort of plan because I know that you're very beautiful. And he's afraid that, look, you know, if this woman is unattainable because she's married to me, then people who covet her beauty will have no choice but to do away with me if they want her. So that's a pretty dangerous situation. So let me not present myself as her husband. If I say that I am her brother and that she's my sister, well, what they're going to do is they're going to court me because I'm the man in her life. And they're going to give me gifts and do all sorts of stuff because they're going to want you. And uh, instead of killing me, they are going to woo me, which is a lot better than getting killed. Right, That's his point. So she's taken into the house of Pharaoh, into his harem, and just as Avram suspected he was going to be wooed with lots of gifts, then God intercedes and visits these plagues upon Pharaoh, and Pharaoh figures out something's going on and says, what'd you do to me? Why didn't you tell me it was your wife? Here's your wife. Go take her and leave. Now, but what's interesting is is that you've got some of this language. In other words, this language of vatukach, the language for the proposed marriage between Pharaoh and Sarai, actually, it's not vayishkav, he doesn't actually sleep with her. He takes her. He takes her into his harem. And the, similar to this isha sheyikach et somebody takes his sister, right? Right, exactly. So, right, and it's not just uh, power who takes her, but when he gives her back to Avraham, he also says take her, be married to her, she's your wife. But funnily enough, this isn't the only time that Abraham gets himself into a situation like this. And it isn't the only parallel we see with this Pasuk from yes, Yikra. that is true. So as you go to the next story, it's another story in Genesis where this happens again. This time, chapter 20, this time Abraham is going down to Avimelech, the Melech Grar. Uh, Grar was an adjacent land to the land of Israel. And um, Avram is there for a while, and Abraham says about Sarai, seemingly, Achotihi, she is my sister, and Avimelech, the king, takes her. And Avimelech calls Avram and says, what'd you do? And have I ever sinned to you that you would bring upon me and my kingdom this terrible sin? You didn't do right by me. Why did you tell me 
that she was your sister. So Avram then says, there's no fear of God in this place. I was worried that if they thought I was Sarah's husband, they would kill me because of my wife. Now here comes the verses that resonate with that section of Leviticus you were talking about. Abraham then makes an excuse and says, by the way, it was sort of a white lie, what I said. I mean, that's not really the case that she's just my wife. She sort of kind of is my sister. I'll tell you why. Because if you do the math, she sort of is my sister. On my father's side, she's my sister. Just not on my mother's side. She's sort of like a half-sister. Now, he doesn't even really mean that she's a sister. What he means is, like, I have a right. sister-like relationship to her. But he does make this point that she's related to my father's side, not my mother's side. But that language of bat avi, but lo bat imi, shows up in spades in that verse that you quoted in Leviticus, right? If you come back to that verse, verse 17, Leviticus 20, a man who would take his sister, and of course that's the language for Pharaoh taking Sarah, probably also Avimelech, right? And then that language, bat aviv o bat imo, the daughter of your father, the daughter of your mother, seems lifted right out of that Avimelech story. Right. If she was a sister on either side, if she was an actual, like, literal sister, that would not be okay. Right. And by the way, that language of chesed, which you were so perplexed about, shows up here also in Genesis 20, verse mm-hmm. 12, in the Avimelech story. Because Abraham continues and says, Avimelech, you know, uh, we had this thing going. Whenever God took me away from my father's house and I did all these wanderings in foreign lands, like Grar, like your land, I would say to Sarah, this is your kindness that you can do for me. Wherever we go, please say about me, that he is my brother. So that language over here of chesedhu, which is just such a strange thing to say, that it's an act of kindness to sleep with your sister, again, seems to be pulled out of the Abraham story. So I will grant you that there's a lot of Avram resonances in Leviticus 20, verse 17. Right. We saw this really confusing verse that described this this situation. But it turns out, here's the story of Avraham, where you not just have two people who are described as being like siblings, these people actually happen to be married to each other, explains the language of Yikach. There's a discussion about being from the father's side or the mother's side. And this really confusing word of chesed, of kindness, is used to describe their relationship as siblings, um, or their at least pretend relationship as siblings in the Abraham story. Yeah. I'll, I will tell you, Ari, that I have no idea what the significance of this is, right? And I'm wondering if you do. In other words, sure, we've got three references in the single verse to the Abraham story, but what is the nature of the commentary that Leviticus 20 is giving us about the Abraham story seems mysterious to me. It seems really mysterious to me too. And I, I have some thoughts. Maybe we'll, we'll be able to figure something out together. Before we try to interpret it though i want to enter one more piece of evidence to the courtroom okay because this isn't the only one of the illicit relationships described in vayikra that seems to have resonance of the avraham story if we scroll down just a few verses if if you look at verse 21 ari this by the way is where we see the difference in age between you and me you 
glibly say if we scroll down just a few verses. Back when I was a young whippersnapper, <laughs> we didn't scroll anything. We turned the pages. <laughs> just saying. Anyway, yeah, go on, Ari. I'm sorry. You mean you weren't you weren't reading from a safer Torah? You had to roll the cloth. That's right. We had to roll the cloth. That's right. We had parchment. <laughs> so we're three verses later now, and we're looking at another one of the illicit um, relationships. Leviticus twenty verse twenty. Verse twenty one. Actually, I want to look at first. So here's it's describing the relationship between a man and his sister in law, right? his brother's sister. So man again who takes the wife of his brother. Again, you would expect it to say who sleeps with. That's right. the real isser here. But if you think about it, why might the Torah be using the language of kach here? That, the idea of marrying your brother's sister, that's something we know a little bit about. Yibam. Is that what you're referring to? Later on in the Torah, that <laughs> yeah. becomes a mitzvah yeah. in the case of the death of the brother. If the brother died and they didn't have children, there is a mitzvah to marry the surviving wife of your deceased brother who has no children. Right. So it makes sense then why it might actually use the language of marrying, because there is this idea of marrying your brother's wife. It's just that if he's dead and has no children, it's a mitzvah. If he's alive or does have children, it's completely forbidden. Right. And not only is it completely forbidden, but strangely, the verse goes on to say that as punishment, they should remain childless. Right, and isn't that interesting, right? So it says, they should be childless. Now, the Torah has a rather small tool belt of different kind of punishments. It can dole out for different things. But you have the death penalty, you have kare, like the spiritual excommunication thing. You could get lashes, um, or if, you, know, you might have to pay a fine to another person. Yeah, this is an unusual punishment. Right, right. and pretty much all of the punishments the Torah gives are basically one of those four things. But this one, it specifies this punishment that they're going to they're gonna be childless. Right. A contrast to the mitzvah side of this, right? Right. The whole, if the whole point of Yibum is basically you're supposed to selflessly help your brother have a child, this it's kind of the anti-Yibum because you are, um, instead of selflessly helping brother have a child, you are selfishly taking your brother's wife um, and basically stealing the ability to have children from him. And the punishment is that very thing that you were trying to prevent to happen to, or you should have been trying to prevent happen to your brother, that's actually going to happen to you. You're going to be the one who's going to be childless. You're going to have no one yep. to carry on your name. But what's also interesting about that language of ariri, childless, is it's an extremely rare word in the Torah. One of the only other places it appears is actually in the Abraham story. In the Abraham story, uh, right after the war of the four kings and the five kings, God famously comes to Abraham and introduces what becomes known as the Brit Ben Abitarim. As part of that, the prelude to that is when God says, Schar chahar ma'od, Avram, don't worry about a thing. Your schar is very great. And Avram sort of can't contain himself and says, What could you possibly give me when I don't have any kids? Like, what, I'm an old man. What are you going to give me? A Cadillac? A Porsche? Like, what am I going to do with it? Drive it around for a few years and then die? <laughs> Who am I going to even give it to inherit? I have no, nobody who's going to inherit me. If I don't have an heir, I have nothing. And God is silent. And then Abraham presses the point and says, look, look around. I got nothing here. I'm down to Eliezer. He's the guy who's going to inherit me. And that actually is the moment where God comes out of the clouds and tells Abraham something he's never really told him before. 
God has been cagey with Abraham and has promised him a great nation, but Abraham's never quite known exactly what that means. Maybe he's going to be George Washington, the father of a great nation. It doesn't mean George Washington was the biological father of America. He was a guy who inspired America, right? The first president. Maybe that's what God means about Abraham. I'm going to inspire a nation. Maybe it'll be Lot, who's kind of sort of related to me. The notion that I would have biological children isn't something that Abraham had really even hoped for until God comes out of the clouds now and says, you're actually going to have biological children. Um, And then there becomes this issue. Is it just his own biological children? Is it Sarah's also biological children? Sarah seems to be not so sure. In the next chapter, tells Abraham to take Hagar because she can't have children, right? But this is a turning point in the story. It's the beginning of biological children. But it is interesting that here in the Arayat, this language of being an arir, being childless, when you sleep with the wife of your brother. But the question is, what would Sarah have to do with the wife of your brother, Ari? Because Sarah wasn't the wife of your brother. Right, right. So those of you listening who have been around the Black with Rabbi Foreman might be kind of noticing that the connection between the, the Yibum type of relationship and Avraham maybe is not so coincidental. Um, and maybe Rabbi Foreman, let's loop back to that in one second because we were asking, you know, what what kind of relationship is she? Right. So I want to enter just one more piece of evidence here. Okay. So what we just saw are two of the only three times in the Torah that the language of Ariri is mm-hmm. used, childless. The third and final time is actually one verse before we just read in Le- in Leviticus, the Leviticus twenty twenty, which describes the relationship between a person and his aunt. Right? Um, so someone who's, who sleeps with his his aunt and basically reveals the nakedness of his uncle. They bear their sin. They'll die childless. Yep. Now, an interesting thing about this is it's, I believe, the only one of the Araya where if you flip the genders, that alternative case is not mentioned. In other words, in any one of the forbidden relationships, if you could flip the genders around, and that case will also be a forbidden relationship. But this one here, where it's talking about your um, your aunt, is actually, if you flip it around, and it would be talking about a woman and her uncle, that's actually not mentioned. What you're saying is, is that if there was an inversion of the story and you switched the genders, then legitimately they would be arir. The legitimately they would be childless. Here, you have a permitted relationship, and yet they're childless anyway. And God comes along and says, well, I can fix that. Pretty soon they won't be childless. But Avram is looking at this and says, I am, am, I am arir. In the language of Leviticus, almost as if I've been involved in some sort of illicit relationship with Sari, something that God didn't want to happen, and I'm being punished for it by not having children. But in fact, it's a permitted relationship. In other words, I guess what I'm what I'm raising, the possibility I'm raising here is a possible interpretation of this along the lines of what you're saying, which is that is it possible that what Leviticus right. is suggesting to us is some sort of rationale that might have been playing around at the edges of Abraham's mind? When Abraham is thinking about himself mm-hmm. and is so convinced that he's never going to have children and is trying to understand why it is he never has children, maybe he's locating that in 
some sort of mistake. Maybe he feels like there was something wrong, something illicit about him marrying Sarai, that the heavens themselves should say, you have to become be childless because it's not okay to marry your niece. And again, Ari, this goes back to um, my theory that you sort of referenced before, so let's get to that theory. My theory is, is that the niece relationship of Sarah is not coincidental, but it may actually be one of the reasons why Abraham was chosen, because it's so Yibam-like, right? The Torah later on will right. identify Yibam as an act of chesed, right? We talked about chesed he, right? So that there's another aspect of chesed. The Torah later on will talk about Yibam as chesed. And the truth is, is that Abraham's whole relationship with Sarah is an act of chesed in a way, in as much as it is sort of a Yibam-like relationship. What do I mean by sort of a Yibam-like relationship? Well, the idea of Yibam is that when your brother dies young, doesn't have any kids, there's a mitzvah upon you to marry someone who otherwise would be illicit, somebody who should be completely mm-hmm. off limits to you, which is his wife. Now, it's almost like the regular laws get superseded. One way to see it is what was forbidden now turns into a mitzvah. Another way to see it, almost in light of the arguments you're making now, Ari, is that, no, it's almost like it remains a somewhat illicit relationship, right? Because it is an illicit relationship to marry the the wife of your brother. Right. It's just that in the case of your brother who's dead, the overriding imperative to somehow save his legacy from completely being destroyed, lo Israel, literally his name is going to be wiped away from Israel. There's going to be nothing left of your brother. It's like you're on the Titanic and people are dying and there's not enough lifeboats. This isn't the time to ask if I should be Shomer Nagia and taking this little nine-year-old girl and putting her in the lifeboat, right? right? You can tell me I'm doing a sin, right? right? But there are overriding considerations. I must save my brother. So it's almost like one way of seeing the Yibam laws is that you override the illicit aspect of marrying your brother. It still is icky to marry your brother's wife, but you don't worry about ickiness when you have this overriding chesed to do, which is literally to save a life, right? Almost, I wonder if that, you know, Avram himself, thinking using these same words about Sarah, might have been saying the same thing. It's icky for me to suggest that you know, you and I are married and she's my sister. She's my sister. I get that that's icky, but we've got another issue, which is like, literally, I'm going to die. So when I'm going to die, chesed overrides that. So this is what Abraham says. This is your chesed that you should do with me. Do this icky thing for me. Kind of like our whole marriage is based on something icky. Like, let's face it, you are... Right. My niece, right? That's icky. But like right. this, it's sort of incestuous that you're the daughter of my brother. Like, you know, what's that about? Right? But the answer is it's Yibum. That's what it is. Haran died. I needed to keep his legacy going. Okay, yeah, Lot. Like but somehow that's not good enough. Lot in the end gets lost. Right? Abraham and Nahar seem to feel there's this imperative, right? Imperative maybe to take care of the children, like somebody's got to marry them. They can't just be orphans, off for no one, or possibly to keep the legacy alive by having children. But maybe later on in life, 
After 10 years of not having children with Sarai, perhaps Abraham comes to question himself and wonders, like, was it the right thing to do? Maybe that's the gloss that Leviticus is giving on this. Abraham says, which becomes language in Leviticus 20, like maybe we were supposed to be our ear. Maybe that's the plan. And then like, God, I'm stuck because you think I shouldn't have any children, right? So now what are you going to give me? At which point, God comes out of the clouds, it's like, no, relax, you're going to have children. But interestingly, at that point, isn't it interesting that Sarah even assumes that Abraham's going to have children, but she assumes that when God said, Abraham, you're going to have children, it can't mean that you're going to have children through me. Possibly, maybe she and Abraham had already internalized this narrative that they were telling themselves that they must have done the wrong thing. That God, how much God liked them, you know, right. you shouldn't. They shouldn't have done this. And so Sarah's like, "Take Hagar. It for sure can't be me." And of course, that wasn't God's plan. God's plan is like, "No, it is you." Maybe which becomes the structure of Leviticus twenty, which is that in fact it is okay for somebody to marry their niece. That's a perfectly fine relationship. That's the Abraham case that is, in fact, not problematic, which is the revelation that God makes in in Genesis 15, possibly. Right. And each of the three cases we saw, they're almost like Abraham and Sarah, but not quite. They're almost like brother and sister because they describe them. Abraham even rationalized them in that way, but they're not. In the Yibum case, it's like Yibum, right? It's almost a bad thing, but if you're doing it for the sake of Yibum, then it's a positive thing. And it feels like what what Avram and Sarah actually did was like threading a needle between all of these questionable, all of the actually illicit things. And I wonder if that confusion on Avraham's part about who Sarah is to him is not part of the picture here too. This is something you argue in your extended course on Abraham and Abraham's journey, right? That Avraham's unsure of exactly what his relationship with Sarah is supposed to be. Yes. In other words, one of the arguments I make there is is Abraham, at least in the Ramban's view, can be faulted for being a little bit too cavalier with letting Sarah be taken by Pharaoh, even if there's justification for it, even if he's worried about his life. He gets precious close to losing her, and the Ramban will really come down hard on Abraham for that. And my argument there is that in as much as Sarah is sort of like his sister, right? the question is, there's this ambiguous relationship between Abraham and Sarah. On the one hand, she's his wife. On the other hand, she's his sister. right? How will he relate to her if he abandons that idea of being his wife and only thinks about her as a sister? That is not okay. It leads him to abandon some of the responsibilities that he's taken on towards her. And to really live up to those responsibilities, he has to remain fully in the role of Sarah's husband, even after all these years of being childless with her, and can't allow the mind games of maybe she's my sister to take over. Maybe, Ari, you're adding a new wrinkle to that course, that he can't allow his relationship, his husband-wife relationship, to be invaded by the thoughts that she's his sister too much to the extent that he would come to this conclusion about the nature of God's providence and said, God must have justifiably made us childless because of this. You know, His job is to do what he thinks is right, 
which is take care of Sarai, take care of the legacy of her brother, be a good husband to Sarai. And then, you know, that's what he's got to do. He can't play the game, which is like, okay, if I'm childless, it must be that I've done this sort of terrible sin, right? And that's God coming out of the clouds in Genesis 15 and saying, no, you're not going to be childless. But it takes some getting used to for both Sarai and Abraham. And maybe one of the lessons is don't play those games. You know, like a lot of times we play those games in life, right? We feel guilty about things and we surmise and we say, you know, well, gee, maybe uh, maybe God's punishing me for X, Y, and Z. And, and typically that's a distraction, right? That's not a game that you're supposed to play. By the way, I mean, like imagine how many childless couples are out there thinking, right. I must have done something wrong. I must have done something wrong. I, and Abraham was that couple thinking I must have done something wrong. And that's what he's saying to God. And God is like, no, that that's not the way it works. I'll yeah. tell you a quick story about this, Ari. Um, it's a great little story, so put up with it for a second and you'll see, right? Um, <laughs> back in 2008, um, it was the financial crisis. And I was a scholar in residence at a Pesach Pratt, Rav Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb, uh, the past executive vice president of the OU, was also a scholar in residence there. And we were both on an Ask the Rabbi panel. And I remember that the OU at the time, under Rabbi Weinreb's leadership, had created this jobs board, this way that they were helping people who were thrown out of jobs and had lost jobs find work. And they'd had a, a lot of success about it. Anyway, so there's this woman in the back of the room who raised her hand and asked a question. She said, Rabbi Weinreb, you know, the economy is it's it's so terrible there's so much pain people are losing their jobs what is the message that Akadosh Baruch is telling us by this terrible terrible downturn in the economy that's affecting so many lives I just want to know what's the message so he said you know the message ma'am is that he wants you to take action to help people who need jobs get jobs like is your neighbor out of work like help your neighbor find work. That, that's what God wants for you now. She says, no, I know. I, that wasn't what I was talking about. What I was talking about is like, you know, what's the spiritual message, right? There's a spiritual message of you soon <laughs> come upon you, terrible things come upon you. God's speaking to us. What's he saying to us now? What's the message? What's he saying to us? He says, ma'am, the message is that you're supposed to help your neighbors find jobs. That That's your message. His point really was that sometimes what God wants from you is that there's there's sad and terrible things happening in the world, and people's jobs are to to act in those cases and to do what they can to make things better, and that's what God wants from them more than anything else. And if you play the game, right? When I say, what is God saying to me at this moment? God's saying something obvious to you. God is saying, what can you do with your human concept of good to actually change something and make the world better right now? That's what you should be doing, right? But the other thing to do is to sort of retreat into the self and then play this game called how guilty should I feel, right? And then uh, I can try to spin the bottle and figure out which of the 17 possible sins that I've been thinking about is most aligned with this. And then I can say, ah, God considers me a terrible person because of this sin. How do you know? How do you know what sin? You have no way of knowing, right? What God's actually saying to you is like, no, actually do something for someone else, 
right? Rather than just navel gaze at your own possible sins that you have no idea what's going on. But it's a very human idea because guilt is so much a part of our lives that we can look at these things happening in the world and then make this magical puff of smoke prediction that, oh, it's because of this. And God seems to be saying to Abraham, like, you can't play that game with being childless. And maybe Leviticus now is giving us this window into what Abraham must have been thinking then. And, you know, if we're right that he was getting all in his head, maybe this relationship I have with Sarah, maybe it's not okay. Maybe we're doing a bad thing. Maybe God's actually punishing me for marrying her in the first place. All of a sudden it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if Abraham and Sarah think their marriage is wrong, they think they shouldn't be together, well, then you guarantee they're going to be childless. And before you know it, you have Hagar. And Think of what happens. Ishmael's born, there's strife in the family, there's got to be divorce, there's got to be this child who's, who's, who's kicked out of that. It's a terrible situation, but it never should happen. And at some level, it happens because both of them are questioning themselves when they shouldn't be. And I wonder if that's why it takes not just this promise here, but then the angels come to Abraham and then to Sarah, and then it's like hitting him over the head with like, no, really, I mean it. You and Sarah are going to have children together. And, you know, you wonder, like, why did God even need to tell Abraham about this? Well, maybe because without those promises they wouldn't have been trying to have a kid anymore. Uh, interesting. So it's it's speculative because we don't sure, know that that's sure. true, but you're sort of going along with that idea, which I developed in Abraham's journey, that there's this constant tension and there are moments when Abraham will retreat from that husband-like relationship and see, him, see her as a sister. And then with this new wrinkle from Leviticus, that maybe because of the fact that she sort of kind of is... There's this guilt about him with thinking, like, should I really be married to her? Maybe I should just treat her as a sister, right? But in fact, his marriage to her has threaded the needle between all of these illicit incestuous relationships into something which is wonderful, which is an older man taking care of his dead brother's daughter and legacy, and it's fine, right? And and not only is it fine, but it is an example of the kind of chesed, the kind of true chesed, uh, which is possibly one of the reasons why Abraham was chosen. You know, Abraham will later on use that word chesed for Sarah covering up the truth of their relationship. But the irony is the truth of their relationship is the great chesed that is possibly the backbone of the entire Abraham story. Well, Ari, this is really fascinating. Thank you for hanging out with me and teaching me about, I never, I mean, now that you pointed out, the parallels are really, they jump out at you, but uh, as in very good Alabeta fashion, they're the kind of thing I never would have seen unless you alerted me to them. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for coming on today. And, and uh, I think we uncovered some really cool stuff, definitely the beginning of some really interesting things. And I invite everyone listening, uh, if you have any other thoughts, drop us a voice note, click the link in the description. Um, and until then, thank you for listening. That's this week's episode. To listen to last year's episodes, as well as our world-famous Parsha and Holiday videos, head on over to olivebeta.org and sign up for a membership. This episode is recorded by Rabbi David Foreman, together with me, Ari Levison. This episode is produced by Evan Weiner. Our audio editor is Hilary Gutman. 
Our production manager is Adina Blaustein. Our senior editor is me, Ari Levison. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.